This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Hanem. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Well, Jamal, we're standing on the verge of war. Uh, I My opinion is that we're actually at war and that the war between Russia and now including Belarus, the United States, NATO and its allies has begun. Uh, Vladimir Putin has announced within the last few hours that he's recognizing parts of Ukraine as independent separatist entities, which he needs to step in and now rescue, including including the Donbass region, which is um, currently experienced about 1,500 individual shellings and uh, displacements of large numbers of Ukrainian citizens into Russia who are Russian-speaking. The situation is very grave. It's very tense. Uh, Russia also has uh, done uh, nuclear drills. Uh, They've extended their war games and uh, uh, with uh, Belarus another number of days. And the pronouncements coming from the Kremlin today and Vladimir Putin, in my humble opinion, sound like the war has begun. We're going to be talking a lot about that. It's a big deal because it has implications for the Middle East, you know, North Africa and the Gulf region. So we'll come at that towards the end. But I think there are two bigger uh, issues from an Arab Talk standpoint. I'd like to announce to our Arab Talk listeners that Nancy Pelosi has announced that the greatest achievement of the 20th century is the apartheid state of Israel. So Nancy Pelosi and her junket of so-called progressive Democrats have sent out numerous statements. And the, the statement from Pelosi to me seems the most abhorrent and immoral of all of them, calling an apartheid state the greatest achievement in the world of the 20th century. So we'll be talking a little bit about that. And then the ethnic cleansing of uh, Sheikh Jarrah in Palestine continues unabated with uh, white supremacist Israeli apartheid settlers are continuing to attack and trying to ethnically cleanse indigenous Palestinians. So we have a big show today, Jamal. That's right, uh, Jess. Uh, let's start actually with uh, the Speaker of the House uh, ignoring Israel's human rights abuses. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi led a delegation of seven Democrats to visit the country and told, as you said, Israeli lawmakers that uh, Washington's support for Israel remained ironclad, also called Israel's creation the greatest political achievement of the 20th century. That's in a speech uh, at the Israeli uh, Knesset. Now, Jess, it's not unusual. I mean, we've spoken about this many times. It's not unusual for members of of the U.S. Congress, uh, both on on both sides of the aisle, to make their annual pilgrimage to the Israeli Knesset and pledge support to Israel. We're used to seeing this, right? But it is, I would say it is inexcusable. It's a a new level, Jamal. And the fact that that Israel now is an apartheid state as recognized by major human rights organizations and its own former attorney general and many others. So by making this visit, the way I look at it and the way I'm sure you see it the same way, by making this visit shortly after the release of Amnesty International's report, Pelosi and her entourage have endorsed apartheid and they have normalized apartheid. Absolutely. And, And that's the thing that I find so morally reprehensible and incomprehensible because you're exactly right, Jamal. This is not breaking news that uh, members of Congress and the Senate, uh, 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 Republican and Democrat, despite their wide differences, would go and have a love fest with the leaders uh, uh, of the apartheid state of Israel and speak to the Knesset. But as you and I have talked about, the timing of this is really even beyond the pale for American politicians. And there are a couple of things which, you know, are especially, dif- you know, painful and difficult and immoral. You put your finger on one of them, the timing. You know, the international community has roundly condemned Israel as practicing as if not acting, if not being an apartheid state. This is Amnesty. This is Human Rights Watch, B'Tselem, Israeli po- former Israeli attorney generals. I mean, this is, you know, they're widely condemned as an apartheid state. 
So, but it's occurring at a time, Jamal, when the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians is is you know raging out of control, and it's also occurring at a time. And you know, we began with this at the top of the hour, you know, with a uh, impending war uh, between NATO, the United States, and uh, Russia, and now Belarus. I mean. I mean, I have to ask you a question. Is this the most urgent <laughs> trip that Nancy Pelosi, the third most powerful exactly. person in the United States, if not the world, to, yeah, to to, to yeah. take to take members of Congress and to go to Israel to pledge allegiance and to say that this is, uh, you know, the greatest achievement of the 20th century, when we have, like I said, we we're going to talk about that, what's, what's going on in Ukraine and, and other places. At the same time, Amnesty International releases a major report, less than five miles away, by the way, from the Israeli Knesset. This is where Sheikh Jarrah, and we're going to talk about this, and Palestinian homes are being demolished in, in Jerusalem. They've been taken over by, by Israeli settlers less than five, five miles away. She didn't right. bother to going there. The Attorney General, you mentioned the Attorney General, Ben Yair, Michael Ben Yair, said, this is his own words, my country has sunk to such political and moral depths that it is now an apartheid regime. It is time... He's pleading with the international community here, Jess. It is time for the international community to recognize this reality as well. So yeah. so okay. who do you pay attention to? I don't understand Nancy Pelosi. She's not listening. I mean, she herself is a you know a politician. She's a, she's she's uh, I'm sure she reads uh, you know Israeli no, she knows media. This stuff. I'm sure she and knows she this. She has aides who brief her on things like this. But here's the calculation. She, she didn't bother Here, to read uh, Amnesty International. She didn't bother ab- absolutely to read this, she did. this plea by the former attorney general of Israel. She did. She did. And that's what makes her trip. And uh, Barbara Lee and Ro Khanna and Eric Swalwell and the other uh, so-called uh, progressive Democrats uh, um, so immoral at this point. Their political calculation is this, Jamal. All the polling suggests that the Democrats are going to get slammed, smeared, and slaughtered, you know, politically in the upcoming midterm elections. Most likely, they, not only will they lose the House, but they will most likely, it looks like, you know, conceivably could lose the Senate. Nancy Pelosi has decided to hitch her wagon to an apartheid state to save her political you-know-what. And her calculation is to 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 kind of forestall the carnage political carnage that's going to happen in the midterm elections. She's got to bend over and kiss the political uh, behinds of the uh, uh, apartheid regime of Israel so as to bring in whatever kind of support she can get from APAC and the other support, you know, pro-Israel support that she's going to get here in the United States. It's a, it's a wrong calculation. I mean, I, not, notwithstanding the morality, which I think it's a deeply immoral it is immoral. I but, mean, there is no no question about but I think it's the morality a poli- issue. Yeah, it's not. I mean, and and to hear Rokana say that he's a progressive. Here's what Rokana says: I'm a progressive for Israel. Does does that make any sense? Like that's like is, saying this I'm a is progressive. Like I'm a progressive for apartheid. I'm Explain a progressive. I, I'm a progressive for slavery. I'm yes. a progressive for racism. <laughs> I'm a progressive for Jim Crow sad. politics. Uh, all that I have to say, it is really <laughs> sad. Shameful and sad. But Jamal, I think it's also an incorrect calculation because the Republican Party is really split, you know, in a lot of different ways. They're going through their own fractions, you know, and fractionated uh, kind of politics having to do with Trump, not Trump in the midterms. But... To see Nancy Pelosi support an apartheid state, what this is going to do is split the Democratic Party in such a way and the voting in such a way that it will guarantee the Republicans a win uh, in the House, for sure. I have no doubt about that, actually. But also will set the stage for Democrats to also lose uh, the Senate. I think she's making a horrible calculation. She has miscalculated. And um, how— so and uh, you know, my, my, deaf. and she's tone deaf. She is tone deaf. And my question to you is, what what is the progressive and even the mildly, not even let's say 
progressive, progressive element of the Democratic Party. But what about just people who believe in justice? How are they gonna? How are they gonna kind of, you know, wrap their minds around Nancy Pelosi saying the greatest political achievement of the 20th century? <laughs> not not the fall of apartheid South Africa, not the Nobel Prize winners in science, not all of the amazing things that have happened with the uh, defeat of, of uh, Nazi Germany in the 20th century, all of these great political achievements and the birth of all these democratic regimes. No, that's nothing. An apartheid state in Nancy Pelosi's mind is the greatest achievement politically of the 20th century goes beyond the pale and this Jamal I'm afraid is you know going to come back to haunt her and the Democratic Party it will which brings me to to our next topic just uh, of Sheikh Jarrah yeah. as you know we've spoke about Sheikh Jarrah Sheikh Jarrah has emerged now as a symbol of right. Palestinian resistance against right. Israeli control of East Jerusalem uh, the plans to evict Palestinians living uh, in Sheikh Jarrah uh, last year, which started earlier than this, by the way, in order to replace them uh, with Israeli colonial settlers, uh, pretty much was part one of the one of the reasons that sparked the Israeli assault on the on the Gaza Strip in May, if you if you recall. Right, and and now we're seeing the settlers backed by a Kahanist, which uh, Israeli media has been describing as the Israeli KKK. Nancy Pelosi won't tell you that this is this is a member of the Israeli Knesset, Itmar Itmar Ben Gavir. He set up shop in Sheikh Jarrah. They're back at it. To date, five Palestinian families have been evicted. And another 20 families comprising of about 300 uh, people face eviction pending uh, the Supreme Court uh, rulings that was postponed because of the unrest that happened a few months ago. Right. So now with the distraction of what's going on between Russia and the Ukraine and so forth, they're back at it. Nancy Pelosi was uh, schmoozing in the Israeli Knesset. She didn't bother to go to this Palestinian neighborhood. You know, she did the kind of photo up with uh, Mahmoud Abbas, who is in Ramallah, who himself cannot go, go to Sheikh Jarrah, right? Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, just to see like, oh, we have a balanced policy. We've met with the Israeli Knesset. Let's now meet with Palestinians. But she didn't bother to talk to the ones who are suffering under under the brutal occupation and under the brutal uh, apartheid regime. And and so now we're back at this precarious position, uh, just that uh, Israel is, is, is basically starting the ball rolling to evict Palestinians from Sheikh Jarrah, and it could happen any day. It could happen any day. And here's my prediction, Jamal. It will happen when the Russians invade. That's how this is all interconnected. This is the classic Israeli ploy. Get cover from the United States, have a large international event happening where the world is paying attention, and use that as cover to uh, ethnically cleanse Palestinians. And I'm afraid that... And I actually think the war has already started. So, you know. Well, there are also, and that's why we want to talk a little bit further about this, because to also to uh, clear the dust and, and, and explain what's going on from all the misinformation that I've been reading, uh, even right here in, in the U.S. media, when they cite it, they, you know, this is part of the whole disputed territory, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the argument now that's been made that the families, the Palestinian families, uh, were offered a great deal by the Israeli Supreme <laughs> Court in November, which is the deal would allow them to stay on as uh, protected tenants for at least 15 years and require them to pay a symbolic rent of about $750 annually to the Nahalot Shimon organization that claims ownership of the land. You know, Unbelievable. those are, uh, you know, Unbelievable. So this, is, Unbelievable. this is the great deal. So obviously, historically, the land, some of the land there in Sheikh Jarrah was owned by, by uh, Jews uh, before 1948, right? So that's, uh, that's, there is nothing, there is no mystery about this. And then Palestinian families moved into parts of Sheikh Jarrah. 
The rest is owned by Palestinian families. So now the argument is saying, okay, well, you know, like after decades, we're going to evict you because this land has prior owners. Hello. Okay. And, Hello, Jamal. And, and you have Hello. all the millions of Palestinians who and are their descendants owners. now, their descendants who who owned ninety percent, eighty eight percent of the land, or, or or something like that, in that figure before nineteen forty eight. No one talks about them getting back rental income or going back to their homes. So you know how they apply the law, you know. Well, what's yours? Reason. What's yours is mine, and what's mine is mine, and what's yours is mine as well. Exactly. This is this is by by the way. I think uh, uh, JFK said that that thing. So I'm quoting him. What's you? <laughs> what's That's mine exactly. is mine, and what's yours is mine. They want to exactly. claim. They want to evict these poor families who lived there for decades, and they're, they're now like third generation or fourth generation living uh, on the land. But then they don't want to return the land to the millions of Palestinians across the globe who have homes, who have land, who have entire but villages. But that's what's not being uh, spoken about, Jamal. That's that's the missing piece of the description in the media is that the racist application of the, the Israeli Supreme Court interpretation of the law. It's like if you happen to be Jewish, then the law applies. But if you happen to be Palestinian Christian or Muslim, then the law doesn't apply to you. I mean, and and you're right, and people need to know this, that prior to the illegal creation of the apartheid state of Israel in 1948, you know, close to 90% of land ownership was by Palestinian uh, citizens, Palestinian inhabitants, indigenous Palestinians in Palestine. And, you know, those Palestinians, you know, you know they're in refugee camps. They've been displaced. Uh, maybe they're on their land, but they're hey, trying to. Be- most of the people who live in the Gaza Strip, the 1.8 Palestinians who live in the Gaza Strip, they were all basically made refugees in 1948. They they came from Haifa. They came from Asdod. They came from Jaffa. They came from from all Bir- over, man. Bir- all over, and that's why they live in in Gaza. I mean, no one talks about this. So, you know, this, 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 it's all connected, you know, because this is what Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to speak to. This is what the media doesn't want to speak to. And this is why I'm really concerned about Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah and in Gaza and, you know, throughout, you know, all of, all of occupied Palestine now, because I think with the Russian invasion, you know, kind of progressing now, the Israeli military, uh, and its and its uh, apartheid leadership will use this as a pretext for further extension of their land theft and ethnic cleansing. This is a very dangerous time, Jamal, for residents of uh, Sheikh Jarrah. I mean, it, it, I just have to go back to what you said before. It's it's so spot on. Nancy Pelosi, is this really the most important thing in the political agenda right now? You have out of control inflation. You have you know. Um, uh, uh, you know, a war that's going to destabilize not only the United States and Europe, but perhaps the entire the entire world. You have your own party that's falling apart before your eyes, and you have, you know, divisions within this country that are tearing it apart, and you want to go and celebrate apartheid. So that nothing— Well, I don't—the se- question, Jess, is this what the—her uh, constituency, is this is what her constituency— elected her for um i don't know i i she believes that i'm not sure people in the problem is that people in san she represents people in san francisco and southern marin uh just uh north of the golden gate bridge uh in in northern california and that's been her district for 30 plus years and she gets reelected People attempt to uh, run against her. They're never successful. She has tremendous sway and power and authority. And listen, Jamal, just to be real, she has been pro-apartheid her entire career. This is, you know, Nancy. (laughs) She she has. She's been, 
She's been a darling of the of APAC. She's been a darling of of uh, you know pro Israel groups. And this is in so called progressive San Francisco. Now you and I have been saying this for many, many, many years that San Francisco is not as progressive as people make it out to be. And you know a lot of recent things have happened in San Francisco, including the recall of three. Uh, board members of the school, you know, the Board of Education in San Francisco. So um, I I don't know how to answer your question, whether or not her constituency in San Francisco and Southern Marin, uh, this is what they elected her for. I think if people knew the details, I mean, how, we knew about her trip to to do this to the apartheid state. But did you see it anywhere else, Jamal? Did you see it anywhere else on CNN, on MSNBC? Well, it was it was covered, but actually no one Where? spoke Where? about no one talked about the timing. Right. You know, it, 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 right. It, they covered it as a protocol news or as the routine that this is, you know, again yet yet another delegation of U.S. Congress uh, going into to Israel. But no one talks about that. This comes at the heel of the damning. Amnesty International report clearly stating, outlining step by step the development of apartheid in Israel since the Nakba, since 1948. And right. That's that's basically what she's trying to ignore, and and you know, pledge allegiance but, and and and. But show listen, support. we need to. But listen, we need to confront Rokana and Eric Swalwell and Barbara Lee, and you know these are. The, they they are all self-anointed progressives, Jamal, especially Barbara Lee, my God, who comes from a truly progressive area representing Oakland, Berkeley, and parts of the East Bay. She truly represents a deeply progressive uh, segment of, uh, you know, the Bay Area in, in California. And uh, I think the question that you asked is better addressed to Barbara Lee. Did your constituents send you or elect you to go and to celebrate apartheid? She was one of the major anti-apartheid, uh, you know, uh, figures, you know, when she was— I mean, was think, think about this scenario. Think about the scenario when uh, apartheid was— on retreat, let's say, uh, uh, you know, in the 80s. And then in the midst of that, you had the, uh, you know, group of progressive U.S. congressmen and congresswomen travel into apartheid South Africa. Meeting what, with Afrikaners. What, exactly. What what would the optics been like? Well, and, and what if they said uh, apartheid South Africa is the greatest political achievement of the 20th century? How would that be received? Would anybody say that apartheid South Africa was the greatest political achievement of of any era? I dare say not. But, uh, you know, this is where people and their constituency need to hold them accountable. I mean, the idea that you could say this is the most unbelievable spin. I'm sorry to bring it up again. But to say progressive for Israel is a non sequitur. It makes no sense. You cannot be progressive and for apartheid. And somehow Rokana gets away with it. Somehow Eric Swalwell gets away with it. These and Barbara Lee no, for that. They're not going to get away with it. Maybe they think they're going to get away with it, but hopefully intelligent people will see through that. Yeah, and this needs to be confronted. But again, I mean, I don't believe that the timing of this trip was random at all. I mean, not I so. know. I believe that the timing, because of the amnesty report, was was timed primarily because of that. But Nancy Pelosi knows about what's happening in the Ukraine right now with Russia, and I think she saw this as just like the Israeli do Israelis do. They see it as a great opportunity because the world's attention is somewhere else. They're betting Jamal the the Nancy Pelosi. I'm going to call them the Nancy Pelosi squad. You know, Ro Khanna, Barbara Lee, and Eric Swalwell, that no one will pay attention because, you know, they're more worried about. Uh, we're paying attention, Jess. Yeah, and uh, we're going <laughs> to continue to pay attention because everything is connected. And um, they will need and have to account for this political calculation. And. And because I, I really do believe that the Democrats are going to suffer a horrible defeat uh, in the midterms, I, I'm going to hold. I'm going to blame Nancy Pelosi for fragmenting the Democratic Party further because 
What's this going to do to Democratic voters who are progressive, Jamal, when they go to the polls in 2022, later this this year in November? Are they going to say, yay, the, you know, Nancy Pelosi celebrates apartheid. That makes me want to go out and vote for Democrats no. again. It's no. not going to happen. It just it's won't. Gonna, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Well, you're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Uh, so we're going to talk about the impact of a Russia-Ukrainian uh, war or conflict on the Middle East. But let's start just by uh, basically uh, discussing what uh, Putin, Putin's message in in it's, his in his speech. It's a it's war. I mean, he and, basically and just 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 to kind of remind our our viewers and listeners. I mean, one of the important points. Uh, and I'm I'm looking at his speech here. Is he, he talked about it, what he said? These are his words. I consider it necessary to take a long overdue decision to immediately recognize the independence and sovereignty of the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic. So, but let's that's the first. but our but our listeners and viewers need to know that that that's Ukraine, yeah, Donetsk and. Those two areas are Ukraine are part of Ukraine. They well, are, the, well, not according not according to him. Well, that's my point. But right now, internationally recognized by the United yeah, Nations, yeah. by it's the entire the world, now. they are Ukrainian citizens. And you know, this is what just to remind everybody: this is what Putin did with Crimea. He said Crimea is independent. Uh, breakaway republic that we recognize, but he militarily went in and took it over. And well, this first, is- if, you recognize, uh, if you recognize these two republics and then they are your allies and they needed uh, weapons to defend themselves or support, you're going to intercede, right? That's and that's what, what did. But, but that's what they've done. I mean, the, the Russian separatists and uh, in, in, uh, Donetsk, for example, right now have Russian weapons. They have Russian intelligence. They speak Russian. They ha- they use the Russian ruble, by the way. So, um, and you know, on their Russian media, they're telling people to evacuate because they are saying that the Ukrainian army is gr- is getting ready to engage in a, a slaughter of you know its own citizens. I mean, this. N- so none I of have it- a question. I have a question for you regarding this, Jess. I mean. Why is this any different than the United States recognizing Israel's uh, control over the Syrian Golan Heights or occupation of the West Bank? I, I, I think that's such a great question, Jamal. I mean, aside from all the hysteria that I've been watching since he made those statements on U.S. media, I mean, I look at it that actually he intelligently, I would say, and calmly laid out uh, Russian foreign policy, Russian interest. You know, this is, this is what he will, and we'll, we'll go to the other points. But then I see the hypocrisy here. And everybody's going crazy. Why, you know, why is he making these statements? I mean, Russian recognition. Well, the United States recognizes Israel's sovereign, uh, Israel control over a Syrian territory. I mean, that it was basically since it was occupied, was asked multiple times to withdraw from by Absolutely. UN resolutions, including Absolutely. the Golan Heights, the West Bank, uh, you know, etc. And 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 so, why is this panic over Russia? Well, the panic over Russia is because um, the United States has this kind of belief regarding a strategic interest that confronting Russia right now um, is in their strategic interest. And that's why they see the asymmetry and that's why they see it differently. Because, you know, I think you rightly said, Jamal, I listened to Putin's speech. I read, I listened to the English translation of it. And he laid out a very compelling analysis for whether or not you agree with it or not. It was a very compelling analysis of Russian strategic interests. His point of view is that he feels at threat by NATO. I mean, there are there are weapons, nuclear weapons, you know, that can easily strike, uh, and non-nuclear weapons that can I'll easily... I'll help you out here just by a quote from Putin. He said, if Ukraine was to join NATO, 
it would serve as a direct threat to the security of Russia. I mean, these yeah. are his exact words. Yeah, and he believes it. And he, you know, there are other countries that are bordering Russia that, uh, you know, are part of NATO, you know, that he's very concerned about. But here's the thing, Jamal. You asked me this last week. Did I believe Putin, what I, did I believe Putin would actually invade? And I said, absolutely. And, and from my perspective, he's already invaded. He has exerted so much psychological pressure uh, by in the last week. I mean, almost 200,000 troops, nuclear uh, war games, missile tests. Um, he's sending blood, <laughs> replacement blood up to the front line, medical teams. Uh, you know, I want to quote uh, you what you've said multiple times on this show, Jamal. If it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's kind of like a duck. So if it walks like war and talks like war, I think it's kind of war. I mean, and, you know, maybe his backup plan uh, is maybe he's not going to go all the way to Kiev, but he's going to take over these breakaway, quote, breakaway republics and incorporate Well, he doesn't have to do it. Actually, I agree with, I mean, he, I mean, he, when you recognize the sovereignty of these two states and they manage, and you, now you have to provide them with support and, and recognition and, and support both militarily and economically. And if they maintain their hold, you've already taken part of the Ukraine. You know what I mean? It's and, kind of like right. it becomes a Russian, a, a, a Russian satellite. And that's right. And that, in my mind, is war. And so, you know, the, just to kind of go back a little bit on this, Jamal, when, when Putin was doing the same thing with uh, uh, Crimea uh, under Obama, you know, one analysis is Obama let him have it. Obama made the the calculation he wasn't willing to go to war. He wasn't willing to confront Putin or Russia at that time. And so basically Russia took over Crimea without much incident whatsoever. And I think that set the table, set the stage for Putin, who has the long view. I mean, here's the thing. Putin is playing chess and uh, Biden and NATO are playing checkers right now because Putin's bigger ideas, he's going to knock off these republics. He's going to recognize them as republic. He's going to recognize them as independent entities. He's going to take them over. He's going to continue to eat away at Ukraine. He's going to, I think he's going to go after Latvia next. And he's going, this is part of his long-term plan. Okay, here's the other thing, just also to buttress your, when you're talking about how, um, you know, taking over these territories because, and that's where I also, I make a comparison with uh, with what Israel uh, has been doing. He, uh, of course, talks starts talking about the uh, the whole history of the Ukraine, you know, right. long thing about the origins of modern Ukraine. Right. This is his, his, his words. Uh, these are his words. Modern Ukraine was entirely created by Russia. More precisely, Bolshevik communist Russia. This process began immediately after the revolution of, of 1911. Then he continues to say, Ukraine never had a tradition of genuine statehood. Wow. You. This reminds you of uh, uh, Israelis and their supporters saying that, well, Palestine really never was a state before or something like this. That's exactly, you know? that's exactly the argument. You know, not, you know, not talking about Palestine being part of greater Syria, part of the greater, uh, uh, in different uh, Arab empires and so forth. Yeah, and that's so, why, I, I was just going to say, that's why I think NATO and the United States are blowing it. And uh, and frankly, in my opinion, it's it's way too late because I don't see how they're going to militarily intervene. And here's the other thing. If they start to impose sanctions, Putin will use that as an excuse to really take things over. So he's extremely brilliant, very smart, ruthless, uh, an, an autocrat. He's, you know, he's doesn't mind using force. And I have a feeling that this is going to be a historical moment, Jamal, that we will look back on many decades from now as as an as as a as a way to redraw the political map of how things are how how work is done, how politics are done in the modern era. It's he's part of a larger group of thugs 
the president of Belarus, uh, Putin, Xi Jinping in China. I mean, these guys, together with their, you know, their their buddies in the Gulf and other areas, are going to rewrite things in terms of how, uh, you know, how the world is going to be. I, I think. Uh, Jabal, I mean, I think we're on the losing end of this, frankly. I think these are his words because you've mentioned sanctions. I've had that next. And this is what uh, he said. They are trying to blackmail us again. They are threatening us again with sanctions, which, by the way, I think they will introduce anyway as Russia's sovereignty strengthens and the power of our armed forces grows. And a pretext for another sanctions attack will always be found or fabricated, regardless of the situation in Ukraine. He pretty much pre- has prepared himself. I mean, he has. I mean, you know, we always say he's a very smart guy. He's he's must have made his calculations as far as sanctions. So, what? So, my question is to you, Jamal. I mean, can anybody stop Putin now? Nope. I think it will, I don't see any other exit. For, there's no exit. Uh, no, Zelensky and the Ukraine, other than meeting directly with Putin and signing basically an agreement, promising not to introduce NATO, yeah, promising I think not that's, to have but strong I think relations fake. with the United States. Yeah, I think it's a joke. To be honest, I mean, Zelensky would be smart to do that, but here's the thing. He'll save his country. He'll save. He'll he save won't. The death of uh, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. Well, maybe he'll save people's lives, but I think the Ukraine is going to be part of Russia within the next period of time. I mean, you know, again, I'm sorry to keep going back to this, but Obama blew it when he let Putin have Crimea, and there's another thing that Putin said in his uh, speech, Jamal, which uh, I didn't. I, I thought you might bring up. He said with the breakup of the Soviet Union. Oh, that's right. Uh, that people. Russia, that the, Russia paid uh, its debts and the Ukraine, you know, because Russia had uh, uh, basically the new Russia had to kind of undertake, even though exactly. these, these republics were part of the Soviet Union, they got to walk away free from carrying over any of the debts. Exactly. And that's an interesting, you know, his analysis from a Russian perspective. You know, you can. You could see how he's strategically analyzing the historical consequences of that. And he said, basically, the breakaway countries and republics from the uh, former Soviet Union got away without not only paying their debts, but without being able to decide for themselves what they really wanted to do, basically intimating that they were coerced to leave. Now, that's a, that, that, that's a particular reading of history. And we know like Belarus and, and other satellites continue and have, you know, stayed very, 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 very close to uh, Vladimir Putin. But I want to, I want to, I don't want to paint too rosy a picture for Vladimir Putin, but he's got problems. He's got economic problems. He's got, uh, you know, a lot of young Russians, the majority of this that their equivalent of Gen Z and Gen X don't like at all uh, what's happening in Russia right now. Um, you have the problem of Dagestan and Chechnya right now, which is a big thorn in uh, Putin's side right now, which is not going to go away very easily. Well, so, I was going to talk about this. We don't have too much time because I, this is where right. I also I see the Western uh, double standards when it came to Chechnya. And right. the Chechens, as you know, they've been fighting for ages to to break away and and no one raised a finger to help not them. Not one. When they, were mean, getting, you know, when they were getting slaughtered, Jamal, and exactly. continue to get slaughtered, no and one... And the question is why? And well, I can answer it because they are right. Muslims. Exactly. I mean, it's very, it's very simple. This is the, 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 the double standard when no one helped the Shashans, no one helped the Dagestanis, no one helped the uh, Sharkas, you know. Exactly. And those are the exactly. kind of the Muslim republics there. But I want to take us, uh, because we have a limited time, just uh, to the question, uh, how will this also affect uh, the Middle East, uh, right. Russian invasion of the of Ukraine, 
definitely will send shock waves across the globe, especially Europe you know, and as far west as as uh, the United States. Even if nothing happens, even if the, the United States does not send any troops there, look what's happening to the stock market every day and the price it's of gonna, and the price and of oil exactly. Price of gas. So, what's going to also happen to the region further south? like the Middle East, I was like looking at different things, you know, especially, um, you know, here's one thing, you know, Ukraine and Russia account for 23% of the world's wheat exports. This is according to the S&P Global. Okay, so in the Middle East, uh, I mean, the Ukraine, by the way, is dubbed as the breadbasket of Europe. But for the Middle East, they also rely on wheat. The Middle East was right. the Ukraine's third largest buyer in 2020 and 21. This is according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. More than 40% of the country's recent wheat exports went to the Middle East. Egypt, with a population of over 100 million people, is the world's largest importer of wheat. Wow. And where do they get their wheat? Ukraine. They get it. They get it. Ukraine and Russia. Ukraine and Russia. Uh, Libya, uh, Lebanon uh, also are big buyers, uh, along with countries uh, like Yemen and, and, and Syria. They depend uh, through the World Food Program uh, procurement on Ukrainian wheat for aid. So even the the aid that they receive for the poor countries that comes from 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 the Ukraine. Just well, so 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 it's going to have substantial effect on countries in the Middle East and and then lastly of course Israel which has been trying to kind of uh, walk a tightrope between Russia and and the Ukraine well guess what yesterday uh, before Putin's speech uh, Israel was reaching out to Russia, supposedly to help it if, if the Russian invasion sh should happen, that uh, that that the Russians will, will cooperate, so it will allow them the ability to open humanitarian corridors to evacuate Israeli citizens from by land to neighboring uh, countries. They've already established diplomatic a diplomatic mission in in uh, Lviv, in western uh, the Ukraine. So they have many Israeli citizens, several companies, Israeli companies right. operating. So it's, it's you know, the effect will be, uh, I think, devastating to, to many uh, Middle Eastern countries. Well, I think that's exactly right, Jamal. And it will further fragment whatever um, balance there is among uh, the Middle East, North African, Gulf alliances right now because just at a time when there was all these economic difficulties going on in the region, guess what happens to the power of all these thugs in the Gulf when the price of oil goes to $100 a barrel? Now these Gulf uh, emirs and thugs who meet with the apartheid leaders like like they did uh, last week or two weeks ago uh, in Bahrain? Um, now they're flush with cash, and so when you when thugs have cash, Jamal, they act with impunity even more. So I, I, I just think that there's no good outcome. I mean, I, I know I'm being kind of a downer right now, but I'm I'm agreeing with this analysis that it's gonna create even more turmoil, even more difficulties. It's going to create the kinds of alliances that are going to just enhance thuggery and anti-democratic uh, principles um, in, in the Middle East, North Africa, and the Gulf. Not that the Gulf had any kind of semblance of democratic <laughs> principles to begin with, but um, yeah, this is going to be bad. I mean, there's there's no way to look at this and and Putin's in the driver's seat. He's 100% in the driver's seat. I don't see, you know, as you said before, I don't see any off-ramp. I don't see how the Emirates or any of the emirs or any of the Gulf countries can do anything about it. I mean, they're, they're kind of loving it right now. When was the last time oil was close to $100 a barrel, Jamal? Yeah, but it, it, it will have other repercussions. Yes, they will benefit the, uh, you know, 
the petrodollar countries, they definitely, for, for a short period of time, they will benefit until the United States, by the way, which we know we've seen the scenario before, forces OPEC and right. forces them to lower their prices, whether right. they like it or not. I mean, if they've done that during um, the war on Iraq, you know, when you put right. the pressure and say we can, right. when the American, I mean, you know, go to your gas station, you know, now uh, gasoline's over $5, right? And then, and then people are, are, are huffing and puffing, even though in Europe it's more than $8 uh, per gallon. Right. They, they sell it there by the liter. So imagine when it jumps to $7, what will happen here? Yeah, that's exactly right, Jamal. So I, I know we only have a little bit of time left, but I, I have to put this out there because uh, I think there's another motive here. Um, you know, one of Putin's best friends is Donald Trump. So if... All of this chaos makes it easier for Republicans to win and Biden to lose and Trump is still the front runner. I think Vladimir Putin is cal- doing a calculation to you know weaken Joe Biden and the Democrats even more right now cuz he's setting the table for 2 years from now with Donald Trump if he if he can or if he will run again. And he sees the fragmentation and the division in the United States is only good for his long-term vision of what's going to happen to Russia as it moves forward. So I think he's got a he's got a very complex chess game going on right now, Jamal. I agree with you. I mean, well, number one, we have to also, uh, you know, concede the fact that what he's doing, he's doing to, for Russia's best interest, regardless 100%. of Donald Trump, yeah. regardless of Europe, any other countries. He, he, he has reached a point to say no is no. And I, I keep thinking about it, you know, um, you know, talking about NATO and how far NATO has, when he was talking about NATO, you know, moving into Poland and here and there, and before you know it, they're going to be at the borders of Russia. And I'm asking myself, will the United States allow Russian military installations, you know, air base, et cetera, right in Mexico or right in Canada? I mean, well, ask about, yourself. And, and, and how about when, it, when they tried it in Cuba? Look at the well, Exactly. Cuba. Well, yeah. this is what I, I mean. I mean, you know, you have to look also from his lens about this, how NATO has been expanding north little by little, and now they're inching towards his own borders, and he's not going to accept that. That's number one. The other point, the other point is the economy. You've mentioned the economy, uh, and he talks about sanctions. Russia has been suff- uh, suffocating uh, recently, you know, on on multi on multi levels, and and he he wants to negotiate a way out. I believe. I mean, when you are strengthening all the countries around him, when you're isolating Russia economically, I mean, you know, how is it going to look t- towards the West? Exactly. So that's why during the Olympics, Jamal, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin had a love fest. And, you know, he has already calculated the sanctions uh, in his analysis, and he's already figured out how he's going to finance, you know, these uh, this expansion uh, back into uh, the Ukraine. And He's a, he's done these calculations, and he said it in his speech. That he understands that the sanctions are coming. And here's the wild card, Jamal. We'll have to end on this. We'll come back to this. You can bet, and you know I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I would bet that if there are sanctions, you're going to see a kind of cyber attack against NATO countries and the United States. I mean, the the what we don't realize is is that russian malware is everywhere in the united states and you know you can expect a very significant very debilitating cyber attack to happen against ukraine to happen against nato countries in europe and even here in the united states so it's going to get pretty bad what's your way out there's no way out <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a way out. No, I mean, if the United States and, and NATO want to capitulate, and I mean, the only way out is to sell is to sell Ukraine down the river. I mean, I mean, I, listen, sanctions are not working. Yeah, they they hurt Russia, but he doesn't care. He, doesn't he knows care. he he kind of expects and made his his calculations uh, vis-a-vis uh, sanctions. You have to give uh, up on Ukraine. 
You just have NATO, to say- NATO, he doesn't feel that NATO is a threat in its makeup as, as long as it doesn't make it into the Ukraine, into Ukraine. And he's saying, you're going to do that. We're going to invade. Basically, I'm ready. I mean, what, what, what people are seeing, what the military yeah. analysts, experts, what they're seeing is that the Russian military is ready to invade any, any, any time. And, it's going to happen. And, and you don't have any... The, uh, the only way out, Jamal, give up Ukraine. I'm not saying we should do that. Don't get me wrong. But the only out... Well, the question is why. I mean, I mean, what interest does the United States have in basically starting a war with Russia? Well, I'll, 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 I'll go even further. I think in the back of Zelensky's mind, if he's trying to do a calculation... Because the United States has screwed him so many times. The United States has screwed Ukrainians and the Ukraine so many times. He might be having his own calculation. Maybe it's not a bad idea to hitch his wagon with Russia. I'm just saying. I mean, I'm not saying yay or nay or is it bad. Well, that's or- what I started by saying. I said that the solution is is really in Zelensky's court. He has to hop on <laughs> the the closest wagon. Well, he has to fly to Moscow. He, sit he's down going to. He's going and to say, "What do you need deal. me to do? What do you need me to do to 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 end this crisis?" Because if he's going to gamble on the United States, and we've seen gambling on the United States in Vietnam as an as as, as a lesson, we've seen gambling on the United States for those who wanted to oppose Saddam Hussein in Iraq and thought uh, the United well, States could bring what about peace Afgan- and prosperity. What about Afghanistan? What about Africa? The, I mean, the list. Look, look at the writing, uh, writing on the wall. Libya. And, and and I think if he if he does, he he might come to his senses and maybe work something. He's still. Whether he likes it or not, uh, he he will have a closer relationship, both historically, politically, linguistically, culturally, religiously, culturally, with Russia than anywhere else uh, in Europe and 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 the West. That's what I think, but I don't think it's politically correct to say that. But uh, we've never been politically correct, Jamal. So, but that's what I believe. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco. 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download our shows from there, and we will talk to you next week. See you next week. Mm-hmm.